Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of Strong Reception with me, Eli James. I'm so glad you've joined me today. Thank you so much for listening. I have a great guest today. You may not know the name Renee Graham, but but you may very well have seen her and heard her talk about music history in such great documentaries as The Two Killings of Sam Cooke on Netflix or the CNN series The 70s, The 80s, The 90s, The 2000s, in which she talks about music and the various social and cultural forces that came together to give us pretty much every great musical movement in history. She can talk about it all. She's currently an opinion columnist for the Boston Globe, uh, where she has been a reporter in very various capacities for almost three decades. We get into so many amazing topics. We talk about growing up in Queens in the 70s, how different New York City was back then. We talk about Prince. We talk about Motown. We talk about Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, Devo. And we also get into uh, stuff that she is writing about today. It's just a wide-ranging series of topics, and she was very generous with her time. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Renee Graham. Renee Graham, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Eli. Great to be here. So I'm, I'm an actor and a writer and a musician and a, and a total music nerd. And in my secret future life, uh, in which I actually earn a living at something, I, I'm a person who earns a living by pontificating about 20th century music history. It's truly my favorite like thing to talk about and learn mm-hmm. about. And every time I would see you speak in one of these documentaries, I think, wow, I, I would really like to do what she does as well as she does it. So before, before we get into your wide-ranging work as a journalist, how did the music obsession start for you? It's completely from my parents. Um, music was a huge influence in the house. Um, my mother grew up singing gospel music, and so mm-hmm. there was a lot of Mahalia Jackson and James Cleveland. Um, and my, my father was from uh, St. Thomas, and so there was a lot of Calypso in the, in the house as well. But at the same okay. time, his best friend owned a record store in the Bronx, so my father was always bringing home new music. And my mother was a member of the uh, Columbia Record Club. I don't know if you remember oh. what that was, but it's, if you got TV Guide, there was a little insert that for a penny, you could buy 12 albums. I, I remember course, the CD version of that. Exactly. And so, and so once you did that, which my mother did, you kind of got stuck. You had to keep buying records <laughs> and buying records. And more often than not, she just didn't feel like sending them back. So we'd end up with Iron Butterfly and Perry Como and Led Zeppelin, and I, I list to all of it. Wow, that's that's awesome. And just uh, want to let our listeners know, you grew up in Queens, right? In Jackson I did. Heights? Yes, yes. Okay. Proudly so. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, what was that like? What do you remember about growing up? You know, it was, um, I mean, a big part of growing up in Jackson Heights, at least for me, was uh, Shea Stadium okay. when the Mets played. You know, I was about... No, about a mile away, so I could ride my bike there. It was like two or three train stops away. Um, big baseball fan, grew up in a big sort of serious Mets mm-hmm. household. Um, so there was a lot of that. And, you know, it was just, it was a, I, I thought it was great. There were parks. I went to public school. Um, there were lots of record stores and bookstores around. So it was just a lot of culture sort of everywhere you went. And, and were you, uh, you know, like making tapes as a kid of all your favorite? Oh my like- God. <laughs> you know, it was, the habit was you would listen to the radio and you would sit by the radio for hours waiting for a particular song to come on uh-huh. so you could tape it, you know, and I would just spend 
like an entire Saturday just sitting there, my fingers on like the play record <laughs> button, ready to, you know, get Donna Summer's Last Dance uh-huh. or whatever song I was obsessed with at the moment. Um, and, and pretty much with my allowance, all I really bought were, were books and and records and you know it got to a point where we started to actually sneak the records into the house mm-hmm. so my parents wouldn't know because i was just spending so much money on this but it was their fault i mean i got it from them so right so even though your parents had all these uh almost free records coming in from columbia you were still bringing more records exactly you know i mean it, it, but it was good because the records my my mom was getting was was were things that i wasn't necessarily going to hear on my own mm-hmm. but it, it exposed me to it so you sit down and you and you sit you know you're listening to led zeppelin too and you're thinking mm. okay i don't know if i get this exactly <laughs> but it's kind of interesting you know and of course now i'm a big led zeppelin fan and, okay. and you know again all of these these songs that my dad was was bringing home from the bronx like he would just he'd bring home acetates he mm. would bring home you know like an, an early quincy jones album and he was just stuff nobody was hearing okay um he would have alternative versions of some of these songs oh interesting and so it was it was just nonstop. and it, it just you know my dad made mixtapes for me when i was in college i mean it just it was just this thing we did my uncle my father's younger brother did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a big, big jazz fan. So, you know, all the jazz influences really came from from my Uncle Calvin. Okay. Uh, it just it was just sort of nonstop. And then, of course, you know, in New York in, in the late 70s, then hip hop comes along. Mm-hmm. And, and that just changed everything. W- were you uh, going to the park jams and, and things like that or at the, at the early, early sort of creation of hip hop? Pretty much. I mean, it was there was a roller skating rink uh, in my neighborhood that was called United Skates of America, mm-hmm. I've heard and of it. they they had this really great DJ there, um, and that's where you would go. And it, sometimes it'd be someone on the mic, and you'd be roller skating, but they would just be freestyling. Mm. And so I, even before we knew what it was called, like it wasn't was even called hip hop in those days. Right. It just was this thing this guy did. It reminded me of toasting, which I'd heard listening to reggae music uh, growing up in, you know, a West Indian household. Mm-hmm. And it was just fantastic. And I can remember, you know, that moment when we first started to hear Rapper's Delight on the radio. Mm. And I remember going to a, a party one night and I swear they played that song 10 consecutive times, mm-hmm. you know, the, fifth, the 15 minute version, because we simply couldn't get enough of it. You know, so it was just, it was just all music all the time. You know, people were in the park with, with boom boxes and it was inescapable. Yeah. And um, in addition to this new awesome art form that was coming up, what of the other sort of like, you mentioned Led Zeppelin, like, were there any other mm-hmm. things from your childhood or teenage years, uh, artists that you were like, oh, this is just going to be my thing forever? I mean, Aretha Franklin, mm. um, my mom was a huge Aretha Franklin fan. And every Saturday we would watch uh, Soul Train at 11 o'clock mm-hmm. and then American Bandstand right afterwards. And then from about, say, one in the afternoon until dinner time, she would just play records. Mm. And she would always have a stack of Aretha Franklin 45s. And she would just have one song after another after another. And it, it just everything about her voice, her voice was just so warm and powerful and passionate and you know because i was a church kid it was a church voice yeah you know and because my mother loved church you know loved the uh, gospel it all kind of came together for me in that kind of way and so you know you always were singing you know seesaw and the house that jack built and okay. not even like you know dr feelgood i mean you knew respect but you knew everything you knew what the b-sides were mm. um because you had those 45s and of course she had all the albums like lady soul and aretha aretha now mm-hmm. um and that that was that was a really really important artist for me growing up mm. um another one was sylvester 
Okay. Not and, familiar. And uh, Sylvester was a originally um, a drag queen. Okay. Uh, Sylvester was the first sort of gender bending artist I'd ever seen. Hmm. And and he was a disco artist who came out in the 1970s with a couple of songs, Dance Disco Heat and You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. Oh, I've heard that. And though. yes, that was Sylvester. Okay. And you had this, you know, big, beautiful black drag queen. Hmm. And you know, we're talking, you know, the 70s and, and, you know, things are, it's not like, you know, the village people, people didn't really get the village people. <laughs> they kind of thought it was sort of like, ha ha, funny, you know, they didn't get the village people at all. But Sylvester was no mistaking it. There was no way to get around. He had this incredible falsetto voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was just, you know, for, for a kid growing up queer, mm-hmm. to see a queer black person with that kind of poise and stature and talent was life-affirming um i wasn't out to my friends i wasn't out to my family that came probably decades later okay um but you know new york in in the 70s was kind of a great place to be so i was certainly you know with my little fake id slipping mm-hmm. off to, to uh to girl bars and and you know places like the fun house and mm-hmm. i can't say all the names right <laughs> i can't say all the names but uh, but you slipped off and, and they were cool. It was just, it was a place to sort of be and to figure it out and to sort yourself out and to find community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I sort of had this sort of elaborate way of doing it. Of, like my par- my friends thought it was one place. My parents thought it was someplace else. You know, and I was on the train, you know, heading right. down to the village uh, to go to a club. You know, it was, it was just the way to do it. I was lucky in that I grew up in a, in a city where that was available mm-hmm. easily. And it was, it was easy to find. And it was, it was fun. It was great. You know, it's interesting. I, I've about New York at that time. I keep hearing these stories, but you know, when I, you know documentaries and and listening to interviews with, uh, say, the Beastie Boys, who they mm-hmm. just said it was just super easy for teenagers to get into clubs in those days. It seemed like there was it was it was much more <laughs> lax than it would be now. Is that the case for you? They carded. I mean, I had fake ID, and I never had to use it. They carded mm. no one, right? You know, and you know, I was a seventeen-year-old who looked like a seventeen-year-old, mm-hmm. and no, I mean, it was fine. I mean, I wasn't, I was never drinking because I, I wasn't drinking at all in those days. Right. Um. So it wasn't about that. It, they just let you in. It yeah. just, it was strange. It never, I never got turned away. No one ever said you're too young to be here or none of that. You just, you walked in. And so you got this great education Yeah. <laughs> because you were around, you know, people who were sometimes as much as a decade older than you. I, you know, I would dance with people. I would talk to people, you know, no one bothered me. I never felt, you know, threatened right or scared so what what made you decide to go into writing or being a journalist or was there something else you wanted to do first there were all kinds of things i wanted to do first um i thought about psychology Hmm. i i liked anthropology for some reason i was sort of going through these things that were going to entail a lot of expensive schooling um but something that was always in the back of my mind probably from the time I was maybe in my mid-teens was, was writing. Okay. Um, I had written a paper uh, for some English class and the teacher wrote in the back, you have a fine talent, write often. Okay. And it, and it made me think about writing differently. And I, I, in, a, in a strange way, and it's true, a, a big influence for me in wanting to write was the television show, The Rockford Files. Okay. Which was was and still is my favorite TV show ever. I noticed on your Twitter profile you have something about the Rockford Files in there. Rockford File, yeah. Yeah. I described myself. I was like, that's so specific. I I, I figured it was about the Rockford Files TV show, but I rarely hear that show mentioned. 
And it's weird because the show is, is it's a sort of quietly influential show. I remember mm. reading an interview one time with the, the makers of the show Friends, and, and he said that was his influence for the show Friends. Okay. Because of the relationships on that show and huh. the way this group of people got along. But it was so exquisitely written, mm. so smartly written, that I actually kept a notebook and would write down some of the scenes. Mm. Because I just, I just love the way they were put together. This is the show uh, starring James Garner, right? And yes. Was he a mm-hmm. detective? He was a he was a private detective and an ex con. Um, and it was it was just a really smart show. And at the time, I was you know I was a kid when I was watching it. I didn't get all of these references references it was making to Hitchcock and all these other cultural influences. I get them now, but the, 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 there was such a smartness to the way the show was written. It was very adult, if you know what I mean. Wow, that's awesome. Um, how did you get into being a, a, a journalist? Um, I, well, it's when I got to high school, I, you know, you have to figure out what you want to do in college. And I, by that point, I was just thinking, you know, wow, I don't know if I want to even have to deal with grad school someday. Yeah. It just sounds long and expensive. <laughs> um, and I did very well on my SNT on the English portion, not so much on the, <laughs> on the, on the math part. Yeah, same. Um, and I just started thinking about it uh, a little bit. And so when I went to college, um, I was a journalism major. Okay. Not I, I would I wanted to be an English major, but I, I wasn't sure how one made a living as an English major. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll I'll go into journalism and that'll that'll kind of do it. I don't think I was really in love with the idea of journalism mm. until um I, I worked for the school paper a little bit my freshman year and then um, was that at I Syracuse? kind of forced Yes, okay. yes. And I kind of forced myself into a uh, a summer internship at a small paper called the Queen's Tribune. Mm. Uh, where Mitch Album used to work. Okay, yeah, yeah, from, he was there uh, same time. I, Tuesdays with Maury, right? <laughs> exactly, and and sort of every every book uh, you've read, <laughs> and um, and I kind of so went with my little sad clips from from my college paper, and they hired me. They hired me because they weren't paying me. Okay. It didn't occur to me to ask for money, <laughs> right. but something which did not make my parents happy, but. <laughs> Something about that experience of of going out and reporting stories. And I was reporting there was you know a wrench strike and murders and labor issues mm. and and suddenly I fell in love with it. Mm. It was just like I was thinking I'm 19 years old and I'm you know standing in the mayor's office. Mm, wow. And on one hand you're thinking what on earth am I doing here? But then you're thinking oh my god it's so cool I can do this because I have a press pass. Wow. I have access and I and then I can you know tell people what i saw so you were and that really turned me on sorry so you were back from college in yeah in, that was between my between freshman and sophomore year yeah and so when i went back uh to college then i got much more serious about um writing for the school paper and writing for some of the other publications on campus okay and it just at that point it was just it was that's when i knew i said like, yeah this, this is what i'm gonna do and how did you get to the boston globe i suppose and was that the first time you were writing about uh, music? It, well, The Globe was the first time I was writing about music uh, full time. Okay. Um, I, I, before I was writing music at The Globe, I was covering, you know, cops and social services mm-hmm. and the suburbs. And, and then when I went from writing from the news side over to the feature side, I started reviewing more shows and reviewing albums and then um, interviewing musicians. And, and that was a lot of fun. Mm. Um, because it was the same. And what was great about that was, again, it was this, you had access to endless amounts of music. Once you write about music, people keep sending you music. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, you would get sometimes, you know, 
50 to 75 CDs a week, mm. you know, at, at the height. And so you have all, and is all the stuff you might not otherwise hear. And so suddenly, you know, you could, you could be at the Pixie show one night, mm-hmm. or you could be at Kasabian, or you could be at Ray Charles, and it was just, or Nina Simone and, and, and Prince, just wow. so much Prince, um, who I got to interview. And wow. all, all that was great. And it was that moment where you're sitting back and thinking, I can't, you know, it was one of those, a friend of mine used to call them career affirming moments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're sitting backstage with Prince for 90 minutes interviewing him, wow. that's a career affirming moment. Absolutely. What year was that when you got to interview him? Uh, 2004. Okay. Well. Um, I had been trying to interview him for years and had no success. And then I got a, a call from his publicity company and they said, can you be in Houston tomorrow? Mm. And I was like, if I got to walk, I'll be <laughs> tomorrow. And I, I flew in and, and it, it was, he was absolutely lovely. Okay. And he was just, he was just funny. He would talk about a song and then get up and play it. Mm-hmm. And I kept sitting there thinking, I can't believe he's doing this right now. I can't even believe this guy is just playing me this. Oh, he just, would pick up me. his guitar and play. Yeah. Okay. He would pick up his guitar and play. That's you awesome. Know? And, it was, and there was nobody else in, in his dressing room but just the two of us. Wow. That's so you know? cool. And we were having such a good time. He skipped his sound check so we can keep talking. That's quite a claim to fame there. It was amazing. Uh, you, can, was... you made Prince miss his sound check. <laughs> I did. As if he needed it. But yeah, it just, it was great. That's so cool. Um, yeah. but that, so, okay. So that's the early 2000s, but it seems like you were writing for the Globe back, way back into the early 90s, right? Yeah, I, I I went to the Globe originally in '88. I was going through some of your uh, your archived work. It's, it's so good. You have some really choice words. Uh, you know what's so crazy about looking at old reviews of music and culture is uh, it just really feels like you're walking back in time, and you're <laughs> you're you're looking in. You're remembering. Oh, there was a time when this album that is now super famous and lauded and heralded was new. And that mm-hmm. artist was new, and you didn't have to love them, even though, right. even if they were very talented. And um, you have a review of uh, of Eminem's second album, the Marshall Mathers LP, right? Um, and the title, and I, I'm the headline is, and, and I'm gonna, you know, not necessarily assume that you wrote the headline. But it says rapper Eminem gets darker and meaner. And I love uh, somewhere in here you write the man with more issues than National Geographic is back. I thought that was brilliant. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, the Eminem thing was weird because I, I reviewed his, I wrote about him on his first album, mm-hmm. the Slim Slate Shady LP. Which you loved, and, right? Which I really enjoyed. And But I remember I got like excoriated by, I think it was Timothy White, who used to be the editor of Billboard. I don't know. Uh, for liking that album. Because mm. <laughs> um, he felt the album was so misogynistic. Okay. He just didn't see how any sane woman could like that album. Mm. And I remember thinking, dude, like lighten up. Okay. Um, I mean, and I see his point somewhat, but it was just weird that he felt the need to kind of point me out mm. in that way. I just thought it was, was sort of odd. But, oh, he called um, you out in Billboard? By name, oh, yes. <laughs> damn. And I, just, and I just thought, I don't even, dude, I don't even know you. <laughs> you know, how you just call me out my name like that? But, I, it, it, you know, but I mean, Eminem evoked that in people. I mean, that yeah. was that was sort of the reaction. People had very strong reactions to him. And, and again, I, 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 I certainly like the Slim Shady LP more than the Marshall Mathers LP. Mm-hmm. But, but the Marshall Mathers LP is the one that just, you know, made him go worldwide in a very different kind of way. Yeah. You call out sort of his unfettered use of homophobic language on that album. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
And you also say, uh, from Big Daddy Kane to Public Enemy to Biggie, homophobia has been an ugly stain on hip hop, but Eminem takes things to a terrifying low. Um, do you think hip hop's gotten better about this or kind of stayed the same or gotten worse? And I have the same question about sexism too. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know that much of it's gotten better. Hmm. I really don't. Um, you know, what, what does better even look like? You know, I think there's still a tendency for people to use um, homophobic slurs almost in a universal way. Instead of calling someone a jerk, you know, you'll call them a homophobic, homophobic slur. Mm-hmm. I still think there's it's it's too tolerated. I yeah. think it's it's easy. Um, I and I have to think some of it is just purely hate based. You, you know, that's not a word you you say unless it's a part of your vocabulary. Hmm. And I, you know, I always felt that. Eminem, you know, he was one of the smartest lyricists out there. Mm-hmm. And there was so much more he could have done. But he went for sort of like the low-hanging fruit. He kind of went this sort of bottom-feeding, um, trashy, anti-gay slurs. And it, you know, I, I thought it was unnecessary. Right. And and because he was very influential on that day and that time, I thought he was just polluting the waters in a way that was unnecessary. Right. I cringe when I hear that stuff. And I also cringe when I hear you know, the B word, uh, used right. sort of excessively at women, at, you know, used to describe women in hip hop. And I, I do, when I do check out new artists in, in rap, I still hear that a lot. It, you know, it can be really hard to be, um, at, at least it was for me to be sort of, a, you know, a, a queer woman of color who mm. liked hip hop. You had to work around a lot okay. um, and you had to excuse a lot. And you, and, and then you have to get, you get to a point where you feel like, I don't really want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? So I need to either find artists who, who give me something more affirming or I have to give up the genre entirely. Yeah. And, and so there was, you know, there was always a kind of fight and, you know, that's not to say that, you know, if I'm listening to Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, singing every word of it, right. you know, but I'm, you know, it's, it's always been it's always been a challenge and it shouldn't be and it shouldn't still be a challenge and it still is yeah you know and i mean all things being fair i listen to a lot less hip-hop now than i was you know say 10 years ago Mm. um and i'm okay with that right okay and and that's also not to say that all hip-hop uses that kind of language uh certainly not no no i mean not to not to paint this with too broad a, a brush but i think what happens with with any uh, genre is it gets kind of boiled down to one thing. Yep. So the hip hop, you know, sort of you know, once you make this transition from sort of everything to, to gangster rap, then that became the sound of hip hop, mm-hmm. except it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was part of hip hop, but it wasn't the whole thing. So suddenly the music that became most access- accessible was not necessarily the stuff that I was most attracted to. Right. But it was the stuff that was selling. So that's mm-hmm. so suddenly once it sells, that's all you're going to get. Right. You know, and so, and eventually it just gets sort of dumbed down and that's all it becomes is there's no nuance to it at all. You can, you can have, you can tell a story and you can use profanity, Mm -hmm. but there has to be some nuance. There has to be a reason for it being there. Right. And I don't know that I always felt, um, as hip hop got bigger and bigger and there was more money involved that that was the case. Yeah. Right. Okay, so uh, I had asked you before we talked if you could name your top three or four uh, cover songs, or songs that were uh, 
done by artists, uh, you know, repeatedly down the years and which one might might just be as good or better than the original. And I'd love to talk about what you told me because they're, they're so interesting and great. The first one you mentioned was uh, Stevie Wonder's version of Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan, uh, which Stevie recorded when he was 15 years old, released as a single in 1966 and uh, became his first top 10 hit, I believe, on the Billboard Hot mm-hmm. 100 and went to number yeah. one on the R&B charts. I'd never heard this before. Before you mentioned I'm it. always surprised that this is this is my parents' influence. They had the single mm. um, of that, so as a kid, I would I would play it, and I heard his version before I ever heard Dylan's version. Okay, and it's you know, but Blowing in the Wind is one of the greatest songs ever written, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, the song was so influential; it inspired Sam Cooke to write "A Change Is Gonna Come." Yeah. So, um. But what Stevie did with the song, you know, with Dylan, it's this sort of plaintive guitar and harmonica folk song. Mm-hmm. Stevie gives it all that Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? He puts that church in it. Okay. He's got that call and response, that counterpoint with uh, Clarence Paul, who's the yeah. other voice you hear on the record, who was also the producer. And he worked at, he worked at Motown. And so it becomes this conversation. It becomes mm-hmm. this sort of social justice hymn. And you know, Stevie is 16, 15 when he records that song. He had been singing it years earlier more as a kind of a pop song. Okay. But once he gets to to record it, it's just, it's everything. The song becomes this kind of indictment of America. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's this indictment of, you know, really white America's unwillingness to change. Yeah. Now, how long do we have to wait? And there's that part where Clarence, when when he's singing, you know, how many times must a man do this? And how many years does it take? And Clarence Paul says, too many years have gone by already now, Stevie. Like that's like that call and response. Like that just takes that song to a completely different level. And I feel like when I hear Stevie Wonder's version, I understand better what Bob Dylan was trying to get across. Mm, that's amazing. That's that's yeah. I, I love that when that can happen with a song, uh, where an artist who does it later can help you appreciate what a great uh, song it is just from its its very base. And yeah, I, I listened to it, and I I'd, I'd never heard of Clarence Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know what a great career he had as a producer and a songwriter. Mm-hmm for a lot of Motown artists, but yeah, I agree that call and response. Yeah. It's it's just very unusual, not the usual Stevie wonder format to have a second singer there. And he does, it does feel very church-like and um, it is very powerful when Clarence Paul says, yeah, way too many years have gone by. Um, It's just that the way that they're sort of playing off each other. So again, it's like, it's like we're eavesdropping on this conversation that they're having. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's still, I, in my opinion, it's got that sort of, 
almost classic mid-tempo Motown beat. It's got the mm-hmm. the, the tight-fisted guitar and that boom, ta, ta, doom, ta, ta, doom, ta. Uh, and you've got the piano. It's just it's just so beautifully produced. It's got that little intro mm-hmm. to it. And then by the end, it's got that wonderful crescendo. Mm-hmm. And then Clarence Paul at that point is almost, just almost out singing Stevie Wonder. <laughs> so you're like, you know, who is that guy? And, you know, and it's, it's I said he produced the song. So he, he knew how to, how to show himself off as well. Yeah. But it's it's just a masterpiece. Did he have a singing career on his own or? Not, really. Not that I'm aware of, no, okay. no. But you know, the idea that you know the guy who's producing the records, who's at the studio, can just go on the record and do what he did, yeah, is pretty remarkable. It just shows you about the wealth of talent that was just hanging out. Oh my god, <laughs> at Motown! I I'm in the middle of watching for the first time, standing in the shadows of Motown, and I'm just oh I'm just so yeah. blissed out on it. Uh, it's about the uh, the musicians who call yes. themselves the Funk Brothers. For those who mm-hmm. don't know, who were just the top class uh blues and jazz players of detroit at the time who barry gordy uh enlisted right at the beginning of motown mm-hmm. in 1959 to just be the house band and just what they 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 created that motown sound took them decades to get the credit they really deserved yeah. i mean those those records they are the, they're the scaffolding that holds those records together yeah and it's just amazing uh, moving on to your next choice, I love this as well. You picked "I Can't Get No Satisfaction" performed by Devo, uh, which was released uh, in 1978 on their debut album "Q Are We Not Men?" A We Are Devo, produced by Brian Eno. Uh, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't heard it, you know it's the take on the Rolling Stones song, and it's so it couldn't be more different uh, uh, than than the Rolling Stones version. I was listening to it recently, thinking like. Devo's version of satisfaction, it's it it's all tension. There's no like the Stones yes. has the tension and then the release in the hey, hey, hey. And the, you know, the Devo one is just all it never lets up that tension. It's just so yeah, like, you know, but the the rhythm section is just destroying it. But like, I mean, look, it, it like the original version is kind of all like swagger and gritty cool and mm-hmm. This is like I saw Diva perform it on Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. when I was a kid, and I remember going to church the next day, and it was all we could talk about. Wow! Because the, the intro is so weird; you're almost like a minute in, about a half minute into the song before you even recognize what they're playing, mm-hmm. and the drum beats disjointed, the guitar is sort of like like on the edge of hysteria, yeah. And then there's this bass line that's kind of anchoring it all together. It's all the song is just a bunch of like like jutting angles, yes. But it's got this kind of jittery sexiness to it as well. Yeah. As you said, it's yeah. just there's this tension in the song that just kind of keeps building and it never breaks until you get to that final note and mm. it just ends. Right. You know, and it's just, and of course, you know, Mark Mothersbaugh's incredible vocal, yeah. you know, which is just hitting all its, all its own sort of angles and just yeah. jarring and jutting. And it's just, you know, it's just one of those songs where it's, it's, it's so much its own creation. It has nothing to do <laughs> yeah. with the Stones original. And, it, and also, just to mention, the nerve 
to do that song, to take on one of the all-time rock and roll classics. Yeah. And to completely deconstruct yeah, it. Yeah, they don't even they don't even keep the guitar riff. That pretty no. much drives the original song. They they cut it out entirely. There's 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 nothing recognizable about the song until you get to the words. So what was the talk like in church after the SNL performance? Was it like we just kept we just kept literally going like what was it? Like, <laughs> Like, and like, did, did we like that? I don't know. I kind of liked it. Did you like it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It was okay. It was, you know, they had on these sort of like uh, these jumpsuits these and they, suits. these sort of bizarre guitars yeah. and they did this little jump at the end of the song. And it just, it was Saturday Night Live was great in those days for mm-hmm. having bands you wouldn't see anywhere else. And, you know, we'd all, of course, have liked the original song. You you know, you couldn't not like the original, you, but we, I don't think I, that was the first cover song I think I'd ever heard that had almost nothing to do with the original. Like there wasn't even a hint of it there. I want to transition into your next choice because this is another one that seems to just throw out the playbook from the original song entirely. You'd be so nice to come home to performed by Nina Simone uh, at the, uh, is it the 1960 Newport Festival? Yes. Newport Jazz Festival. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I had not heard that one either before you mentioned it. Uh, that's the Cole Porter standard originally, uh, released in 1943 by Dinah Shore, who had the original hit with it, and then became a standard performed by so many people, Frank Sinatra, and on and on and on. Um, yeah, Chet Baker, Ella Fitzgerald, Helen Merrill, like everyone mm, has done this song. Yeah. You know, instrumental versions. Um, and I thought I'd heard them all. <laughs> and then, it's really only about a month or so ago, I, I discovered uh, Nina Simone's version. Oh, really? Okay. And yeah, I was, I think I was listening to like, like a Spotify playlist or something and it came on. Okay. I don't feel so bad And now. I was, yeah. <laughs> and I was, and I have a lot of Nina Simone, but I had never heard her, the, the Newport album. And I was just listen, listening to it and I was working and I suddenly was like, what am I listening to? And it just made me stop. It, it sort of deadened my tracks yeah. and go back to the beginning and say, what is going on with that song? And it's just this, you know, what I like about the song is like, I always feel like the language of love in music is really about possession and obsession, mm. right? It's always, you know, you belong to me if you were mine. Mm. You think of a song like Harry Nielsen's Without You, Can't Live If Living Is Without You. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Prince's I Would Die For You. And it's like, yeah, no, no, don't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't die for me. Seriously, I don't, I don't need that. And so I'm always weirded out about what to me feels, feels like a dark undertone in a lot of love songs. Okay. And... What Nina Simone does in this, she she takes the undertone and makes it the song. Okay. The darkness of the way she sings it and the way it's executed is is what I really love about it. And so her once you know, there's this long intro and yeah. it sort of has this crescendo, but once her vocal vocal starts, it's like this sort of raging storm at midnight. Bach, she's doing this kind of Bach counterpoint. Yeah. You know, which 
so she's almost singing against the music. Yeah. It... And and that gives the song a lot of energy and tension. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it gets to the heart of, you know, the idea of desiring someone, but what that desire really means. Mm. And when does that desire become obsession? I did get to see her live and I actually oh, yeah. interviewed her, which was uh, its own thing. Wow. <laughs> um, but I mean, she was, I mean, even late in her life, she was a tornado yeah. on stage. You know, she knew exactly what she wanted her band to do. You know, she would yell at them if she needed to. I mean, she was so exacting about what she wanted as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, and she delivered. She absolutely delivered. Mm. All right. Moving on to the final uh, choice. The, you, well, you, you called this an honorable mention. And uh, uh, this is uh, Que Sera Sera, performed by Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, again, another standard that came into being, I believe, in the mid-50s. And it appears on Sly and the Family Stone's 1973 album, Fresh, which is an album I never listened to before. Mm. Uh, so I just got acquainted with that. There's some great stuff on there, including, interestingly, tying back to a couple of minutes ago, they do sort of an answer song to I Can't Get No Satisfaction on that album called I Don't Know Satisfaction. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very cool song. Um, but interesting that Que Sera Sera, uh, they do, it's a very bluesy, funky version of it. Uh, and it's one of the few tracks where I believe it sounds like, is it Rose Stone doing the lead vocal in the beginning? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And she doesn't really um, get to to do solos too much in their, on their albums. Not, not that often, which is unfortunate because she had a great voice. Yeah. Um, you know, Que Sera Sera was Doris Day's, one of her signature songs. Mm. And, you know, when she had her own TV show in the 60s, that was, they used Que Sera Sera as the theme song because it was so much associated with her. Mm. And uh, I, I think I heard the Sly version. It was, it was the, the closing song on the movie Heathers. Okay. And so, which came out like in the late 80s or so. And I remember like listening to it. And I really enjoyed the movie and, and thinking, who on earth is this singing Que Sera Sera? So I, I waited for the credits to roll. And it's just, again, nothing you would expect. They, you know, they, they, again, a sort of a darkness to the song but also bluesy and kind of funky. vocals are sort of like you know crashing into rose's vocals mm -hmm. and you know it's all those good things it's like, you know look if, if you're gonna do a cover song <laughs> you know if you're gonna do someone else's song fine but there's really no point in doing it unless you make it your own yeah you know unless you can somehow you know unearth some sort of hidden gem and find something distinct from the original. Mm -hmm. And so that's, for me, that's why I always want in a cover song. I remember some years ago, I, I saw a musician play um, John Coltrane's version of, of my favorite things, but okay. it was note for note, mm. the same exact. And I thought, what was the point of that? Like, <laughs> I, I can just listen to my favorite things by John Coltrane. Right. So and a, a cover song has to find something else. And yeah. I think 
you know, that's what I'm all on tangent, but there was, I remember hearing an interview with, with Trent Reznor okay. talking about hearing Johnny Cash's version of Hurt. Mm-hmm. And I remember he said, wow, I, I kind of totally missed the point of my own song, didn't I? Like he didn't <laughs> get the song until he heard Johnny Cash do his version. Interesting. Of the song. Mm. And he, Johnny Cash arrived someplace that Trent Reznor didn't. And Trent yeah. Reznor immediately recognized that. That's and so great. I think that's the key to me to a great cover song. When, when you hear it and you're thinking, you're not even thinking about the original song at all. It becomes its own distinct and original thing. Mm. So now you are an opinion columnist at the Boston Globe. And yeah. um, you, you had said that you would went away for a while and then came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the globe, and uh, you know, you are writing about the events of our time, uh, <laughs> the the many many uh, events of our time. Uh, you know, mainly politics, racial justice, etc. And um, uh, is there a little more free freedom than in being a staff reporter and 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 reporting on on the news in that way? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the funny thing was when I returned to the globe, I was I was hired back. Uh, to write for the op-ed section, but to write about pop culture. I see. Um, I started the job the day before the 2016 election. Okay. And that changed the everything. The day before. Yeah. Oh boy. Did you know? Did you have any idea what how it would turn out? Nope. <laughs> Not a clue. Nope. Um, and that and that completely changed the uh, trajectory of my uh, my career as a columnist. Mm. Um, and then it just it became a lot of politics and and the effects of what you know, what this administration I felt was, was doing to the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to be in a position to write about that. uh, And of course, what I write is my opinion. I'm not representing the newspaper. It's Mm -hmm. not an editorial, but to be able to do that um, is incredibly liberating. And I don't, I don't take it for granted at all um, in a way that I might have earlier uh, in my career. Um, It's, it's a privilege. Mm -hmm. And and it's one I take really seriously um, because you know, people could be reading anything and, you know, and when people read and they respond, it, it means something to me, but mm. it also, you know, it's, 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 it's a form of therapy for me as well. Okay. You know, I get a lot out, Yeah. um, being able to do that. And so, you know, in, in, in my mind, there's, um, there's always a column going, there's always mm. something I'm thinking about. And sometimes it's something very small, you know, and other times, you know, it's, it's, it's something really, you know, sort of world shaking. You feel like I need to say something about this. Um, and so I, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, it's a job I take very seriously and it's a job I also love. You mentioned that when you started out uh, reporting, I think it was, was it the Queens Tribune in, mm-hmm. during college, when you were covering stories that had to do with the cops uh, and the community, was it, was it sort of the same tension, the same problems or were they very different? I don't know that I thought as much about them, um, but you know, part of me wants to say it's worse now, but I also know that's not true. Mm. You know, there were there were always questionable shootings mm-hmm. when I was growing up, um, so you know that part of it isn't new. The part of it that's new, of course, is that there's social media to amplify everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I was you know, I was always sort of wary around cops. Uh, just generally because, you know, they had a gun and I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, the tensions were always were there. I mean, I grew up in a black neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, so if there was a cop car in the neighborhood, you know, nobody was particularly happy about it because it, it, it generally wasn't for our benefit in okay. any way. And so, um, you know, it was, you know, police, you know, police tensions have always existed. And it certainly existed in New York when I was growing up. 
Um, we're, we're, I don't know that there's more of it. I just think that we we hear about it a lot more often. It has it has a what happens in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now the whole country will know about mm. in a way that you know what happened to you know Eleanor Bumpers in New York, who was a, 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 a black woman with mental health issues who was shot to death in her home by the police. Mm. Um, didn't get a national, didn't get national attention. Right. You know, you didn't have necessarily, you didn't have CNN, you didn't have all these sorts of things that could kind of do that. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that it was, it was, it's very different. I just think the, the ways that people find out about it are different. And so that every one of these things that happens now feels closer than it would have before. Hmm. As a New Yorker, what, what do you, can I get your opinion on, uh, you know, there, there are many people crying out to defund the police. Some people saying, let's defund the police in a very specific way. Some people saying, hey, let's be more careful about what we do. You know, some people saying abolish the police. Um, it's so hard to know what the solution is. Um, what, do you have an opinion on, on what could make things better? Well, you know, it was interesting. The, the police commissioner here, uh, William Gross, uh, I think this was shortly after um, the George Floyd killing. In Boston. Was talking about, in Boston. Uh, yeah, William Gross, who's Boston police commissioner, um, was talking about the George Floyd killing. And he was talking in general about how the police are simply asked to do too much. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, we're asked to be social workers. We're, and he, he ticked off all these things that police are expected to do. And I remember thinking, he's right. So let's take some of that money from the police department and give it to the services that can actually help people. I, I, I simply do not think that when someone is having a, a mental health crisis, that having two people with guns and batons showing up is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so, and there are already programs in the country where there are services where a social worker and maybe a psychologist goes out. And then the police can be nearby, but they're not the people to go to that call. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about the funding in terms of rechanneling, reallocating resources and giving them to services that can actually help the community instead of harming the community, yeah. then I'm all for it. Yeah, Absolutely. And we know that in, you know, in many of the major cities, police budgets are massive, you know, and you know, look at the, I mean, if you look at, look at the settlement that Breonna Taylor's family got, $12 million. Hmm. Maybe if, you know, all the things that, that caused her death, you know, no knock warrants, all of that, this, you know, there has to be a way to change that. And it has to start. Well, there's lots of things that could be done. You have to get yeah. rid of qualified immunity, but I mean, there are lots of things you have to do, but one of them is taking away some of these responsibilities from the police who don't want them, and mm-hmm. frankly, aren't particularly good at them. Right. We know when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And there is no excuse why what happened in in Rochester with was uh, Daniel Prude, who, you know, who was again having a mental health episode, yeah. and is naked on a, on a street in the middle of a snowstorm. Yeah. Why he ends up dead? Yeah. It happens too often. Yeah. So I'm all for the idea of reallocating funds. I think that's a huge first step. Yeah. And, and, and putting them in the kinds of services, A, that help avert crime, yeah. that can actually help people who are having uh, mental health issues. There's, there's, there's got to be a better way. This yeah. is not working. This simply isn't working. Yeah. And there also seems to be just some kind of huge uh, cultural problem with just so many incidents that don't involve a person who has a mental health issue, but someone who was just kind of walking down the street, minding their own business, 
maybe they had some marijuana, maybe they didn't, and 20 cops come out of the woodwork and shove them onto the pavement in a very violent way, or or two cops, or whatever it is. Like, you know, these videos that come out where it's just the the strong arm tactics and the, the sort of terrorizing, the, 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 the these macho takedowns that are... But I think that's what it's meant to do. I think it's meant to terrorize. Mm-hmm. And I'm still trying to figure out that, you know, if in fact... George Floyd had accounted for $20 bill. Why four police officers were necessary for that? Mm-hmm. Four? Who were they expecting? Right. You know, and it's the same thing. If you look at the number of people, you know, following Jacob Blake to his car in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it's like, why do you need that many police to, sh- to show up for this? It's like, right. so th- I think that it's the show of force is meant to, to intimidate. Mm-hmm. That's the exact point. It's meant to terrorize communities. It, it, it's, it's meant to make people feel like, they're under a constant invasion. Yeah. And that's, I think that's somehow that needs to be broken. That, that right. the mentality. And if you don't create more police accountability, then you're never going to get there. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't actually have consequences, if the consequence of what happened to Breonna Taylor is that taxpayers in Louisville end up paying out a $12 million settlement to a family, mm-hmm. what lesson is learned by the police department? None. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, you know, reform is fine. And you can certainly probably do better training, but it has to go much deeper than that. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm gonna wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much for for giving me all this time. I appreciate it. Thank uh, you for indulging me. Yeah. No, this has been great. No, I could talk for longer. Uh, I, I I'm I loving getting into all these different topics. Please check out Renee Graham's uh, column in the Boston Globe. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at uh, at Renee Y Graham. Renee Y. Graham, and she's just a magnificent writer. So I, I really hope you check out her work and uh, and watch the killing, the two killings of Sam Cooke. And, and uh, there was another one I left out that that you're in. 1968, the okay. movies. There's, 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 there's quite a few. I can't even remember them all. People now. want to hear from you. People need your expertise. <laughs> um, okay. Well, Renee Graham, I will. I, I look forward to seeing what you do next. It's, it's been my pleasure, Eli. Thank you. Yeah, take care. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Renee Graham. I do hope you check out her work. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Please keep tuning in. Uh, I'd love it if you subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your pod stuff. And uh, leave me a review. Leave me a rating. Spread the word. Um, I really appreciate it. If you want to check out uh, some of my writing about voting rights, I'm at votinginthedark.com. But hey, no pressure. The only thing I ask really is register to vote, please. Uh, It's September 27th. I hope you're uh, taking whatever steps you need to take to make sure that you're registered, that your uh, address is updated in your registration with your state and your county board of elections, and that you are deciding uh, who you're going to vote for, not just at the presidential level, which of course course is super important, but down on the local level. We've got judges on the ballot, city council members, all of these people make a difference to our lives. Uh, So let's do our research and uh, make a plan for voting this November 3rd or earlier if you have early voting in your state, which I hope you do, or voting by absentee ballot. Okay, thanks very much for listening. Take care.